Good morning from snowy central Alabama. If you are listening to us anywhere in the SEC footprint, except for maybe Florida, you're probably waking up uh, to a winter wonderland this morning outside your window. And that's where we are too. But thankfully, we are, uh, we are warm at home right now, and we're ready to discuss some SEC football like we do every Tuesday here on First Down South. I'm joined by my good friends John Talty and Matt Zenitz. And guys, uh, I, I, I hey, props to Jay Talts. That's the first time I've seen a, a North Face. Uh, North We're all busting out the winter there. weather gear, man. Yeah. yeah. If North Face wants to sponsor me, I am open to it. <laughs> Can respect that. Yeah. It feels like it goes back to the Baltimore days for me since I saw somebody wearing North Face. It's almost like a blast from the past. John Talty uh, on the forefront of the name, image, and likeness movement in college sports. <laughs> It so, weird. North Face Under Armour guy got the full like. That's right. Yeah, we're we're repping we're repping our gear uh, with no compensation this morning because this is a <laughs> college sports show. So it, it's been an interesting couple of days. A a um, a movement that seemed to swell up out of nowhere uh, finally came to fruition yesterday when Gus Malzahn, former head coach at Auburn, ends up being named the head coach at Central Florida. Uh, this is not particularly a move I saw coming. It seems like not a lot of folks around the Auburn program saw this coming. It, it, it was a, you know, I, I think we had almost reached a foregone conclusion that Gus was going to spend 2021 uh, chilling, relaxing, fishing, eating Taco Bell, doing all the things that we know Gus loves to do. Uh, but he ends up having this opportunity comes up and he and he takes it. So first of all, just before we get into this, John, what do you what do you think about this decision by Gus? I guess not so much in terms of the the larger landscape of, of how it affects college football, but just for Gus and his own personal career. Um, what do you make of this move? Well, I think you can look at it two different ways. One, I think it's a great landing spot for Gus in the sense that. This is probably one of, if not, you know, top three or four best group of five jobs. We've seen, you know, both Scott Frost and Josh Heupel have a lot of success there recently. And from talking to people in the industry, you know, a lot of people wanted this job. It was a very competitive job. You know, I think that there was a very, very strong candidate pool. And I think that shows, again, people thought that they can come in and win right away at this job, which I think that Gus is going to be able to do. I think the downside for me is whether Gus has learned enough from why things didn't work at the end at Auburn uh, to be able to be, you know, the, the best version of himself at the next job. You know, I know you talked yesterday kind of about, you know, kind of a hard look that he's done over the last two months. But, I mean, I don't know how much you can necessarily learn in just two months. I think that we've seen sometimes in the past, you know, guys jump into a job very fast after getting fired. Everybody's excited about it. You know, Kevin Sumlin, I think, is a good example of this. And that person is not really having success at the next job, I think, in part because they didn't have enough time to really take a step back, talk to different people, really do a thorough evaluation of why things didn't work. And so for me, if there's a concern, it's that Gus Malzahn was known as an innovative offensive mind. If you look at the beginning part of his tenure at Auburn, that's really kind of what they were known for and what they were best at. If you look at the end of his tenure at Auburn, no longer an innovative offense. The game had changed. People had caught up to what they were doing, and they were known much more for what they were doing on defense than offense. My concern would be that he does not figure out what went wrong there 
you know, enough to be able to have success at the way he should at UCF. You know, I do think that's an interesting point, John. Uh, but but I also think to some degree, because because success at a football program, I know everybody likes to make the story, this guy was in charge, they didn't win, so he's the failure. But I, I do think it's interesting sometimes how complicated all of this can be. And, and I think a lot of coaches, uh, both of you can attest, would tell you that they don't always have all the resources that they need to be able to be successful. Um, sometimes they get hampered by other people in their own program, university. Um, and I think there's probably some pretty good evidence that that's how Gus feels. So it, it will be interesting to see what plays out now that Gus is walking into a program where I don't want to say that Gus Malzahn is bigger than UCF, but he's, he's a bigger fish in a smaller pond now than, than what he's coming from, you know, a place that has such institutional, um, you know, power and prestige that, that there are guys at Auburn that can say, we've been here longer than you. We know what works and you got to listen to us on this. I don't necessarily know that there will be anybody at UCF that pushes Gus around like that. Um, but Matt, we, I mean, we saw yesterday there were, there were people in central Florida asking Gus if he was going to be able to handle the the pressure cooker of UCF football. Um, what, 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 what's your feelings, I guess, about how how entwined UCF is suddenly becoming in Power Five football. I mean, they're they're obviously not part of it yet, but they they do seem to be they they seem to consider themselves there. I, I I'll backtrack just to what you were saying, just in the lead in to the first part uh, where we're led into John's question, and this is something where. To, to people in the, the football world and just looking back through even like messages yesterday, I was curious how far back um, Gus's name had come up. And I, I went, went back to January 27th, right, when, when all of this opened up with the, the UCF deal where Gus's name had started to be floated out there with, with people in the football world in terms of being a potential fit at UCF. And obviously there have been names like Jeff Levy that had gotten a lot of traction during the course of even just the, the last week. But I can tell you, and John and I had this conversation Thursday, Friday, whatever it was, that had somebody in the, the football world mention Gus at the very least is somebody to keep an eye on. And it was very clear throughout the course of the process with UCF that they were targeting an offensive-minded guy. So their interviews were not limited to coaches with offensive background, but it was very clear even to candidates who were involved in this, that the preference for them was to get an offensive-minded coach. Gus obviously falls into that category. And to me, this is a win-win for, for both sides. So UCF is the kind of job where not only is it arguably the best group of five job in the country, but it's a group of five job that's probably better than a lot of power five jobs around the country. And then to go along with that, you're bringing in a coaching Gus who – I mean, it'd be hard pressed to, to find somebody for school like that that is more a, accomplished coming in, even though there would have arguably been some guys, whether it be Jeff Levy, somebody else, um, who arguably could have had maybe more upside, um, but, but at the same time would have been a, a lot more unproven than somebody like Gus. Yeah, and I, I do wonder, Matt, what do you what is your impression of where 
where where Gus's perception is in the coaching community in the in the athletic college athletics community right now. I mean, because I, I I honestly don't really know what I feel about Gus mm-hmm. right now. I I think it there's there's no question that the trajectory of the program wasn't great in the last year or so. But at the end of the day, I mean, I I keep trying to come to terms with a couple of facts about Gus. One one of which being this is the last guy to beat Alabama. This is the last guy who who was yeah, able to put that, that together. Yeah. And, and, on, and on top of that, I would also say there are really not very many active head coaches in college football that have made an appearance in a national championship game. And, and are still, I mean, it, it's been so concentrated among the top. And Gus is one of those guys. So what's your what's your feeling about where he's perceived in kind of the pecking order right now? People haven't forgotten he is the last head coach to beat Nick Saban in Alabama. And obviously, even though there were clearly issues at Auburn during the course of the last few years, Gus had that program consistently at a point where um, they they were competitive within the SEC and. I obviously performed it the absolute worst or at the very least at an above average level. And wait, once again, this is an accomplished coach who not only has, wait, what is it? Three wins over Nick Saban, but um, obviously has the the national championship background to to go along with that. I, I think that UCF is getting a win here. And more importantly, than my opinion, in talking to the people in the coaching world yesterday, they feel like this is a win for UCF and even more so just overall a win-win in this situation. It's just a great fit overall. That was the consistent feedback that I got yesterday. Yeah, I mean, I it's 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 evident they were very excited about the hire at UCF yesterday. I, I think I think it's going to depend on how things go on the field, but they've got an opportunity here, I think, uh, to to – put their program back in the middle of the national conversation the way they were in 2017. I think Gus has an opportunity as well to make himself uh, a really hot name again in the way that he was, you know, five or six years ago coming off of that 2013 season. Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I I have one more thing in. So so it was interesting just because I don't don't follow UCF on a a daily or consistent basis. So it's getting some feedback on them yesterday. And there were some issues with UCF during the course of the last couple of years. So if you look at what they did under Scott Frost, that was the point when they were uh, posting the undefeated season and and things along those lines. But if you look at the the last couple of years, I think had – like seven losses the last two years combined, something that, that was consistently referenced were some culture problems under Josh Heupel, um, especially last season. They lose a, a good amount of guys off of last year's team, uh, including top players like Aaron Robinson, who Alabama fans probably remember was a part of this program before going to, to UCF and becoming a standout guy there. So it's not like Gus is walking into a situation where they're coming off an undefeated season. It's going to take some work to get them back to that level, just to be clear. Right. but. Obviously, it's a high upside program that you've seen uh, during the course of these last few years, what they're capable of accomplishing. And it was pretty clear just the respect that people in the coaching world have for this job, this program, based on some of the people that that were in the mix and being interviewed for it. So aside from Gus, you had Jeff Lebby, who obviously was a part of one of the top offenses 
in college football last year at Ole Miss. Phil Longo in North Carolina was another guy who, who interviewed on Friday. Heard, heard yesterday that Dan Lanning from, from Georgia, the D.C., had interviewed to go along with that. And I'm sure there were, were at least a couple other guys to go along with that, but some highly respected names, and it shows just the, the kind of job that this is. Yeah, well, we, we will have to see what Gus makes of the job and what he does within the next couple of years. But, uh, you know, assuming he's able to uh, to make UCF uh, among the, the best teams in, the, in, in their respective conference uh, and get the program back to where it was under Scott Frost, Gus could very quickly become a hot name again in college football and, and a hot name to the point that I wonder if we could be hearing Gus mentioned as that name uh, that that everybody's kind of got their eye on in the SEC uh, a couple of years from now. And and John, we, we know the way that that uh, the SEC operates. We know that even if if everybody's high on you right now, uh, you you really never have that long of a leash. So I, I'm I'm curious beyond Gus. Um, are, are there names out there floating around right now that if you're a coach that's maybe edging towards the hot seat heading into 2021, uh, that, that those guys make you nervous, you're looking over your shoulder a little bit at them. Yeah, I think there are two obvious ones and, and that's Billy Napier who has seemingly been up for every single SEC job that's opened up over the last few years. And then also Hugh Freeze who gets mentioned for every SEC job, but hasn't really gotten any traction because of his, you know, well-known issues. So I think those two guys, any single time an SEC job opens up, those two guys will get mentioned for it. Uh, Napier has obviously had, you know, multiple opportunities this past cycle. Uh, you know, if a school, say LSU opens up, could that be the one that gets Napier to finally jump uh, and leave Louisiana? I mean, it, it's possible. So that's, I think it depends on the opportunity for Napier. He's obviously been very patient and waiting for the right you know job, so he's not going to jump at just any SEC job. But if one of the bigger ones opens up, maybe that's something that happens. Another you know name I think to keep an eye on for you saw his name I think get thrown out for some of these jobs uh, is, is West Virginia's Neil Brown. You know I think Neil has done um, a pretty good job. I wouldn't say a great job, but a pretty good job at West Virginia. And I think if he can keep elevating them, you know he has ties. If somebody like Mark Stoops decides to leave Kentucky, Neil Brown would make a lot of sense to slide in there. Uh, so he's another one that I think is going to come up, but you'll have even more guys. You know, I think Will Healy, if he has success, he had an unfortunate year, uh, which almost all their games got canceled. But you know, if he has success, I think he'll get mentioned for jobs. Scott Satterfield at Louisville got, you know, was very much in the mix for that South Carolina job. If things don't go, you know, maybe as planned this year, I could see him look for an exit ramp. So there's multiple names that I think that are going to bubble up, including Gus if he has success in the future. But I think Napier and Freeze are kind of the top two at this point in terms of SEC jobs. And and John, was there was you know, did you get the impression that part of the reason why Napier or Freeze, either one of them, didn't ultimately end up in any of those openings in the SEC this year? Was it because they were waiting for a bigger fish was it what 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 do you what do you get the impression was that was down to well i think it's different things i mean i think napier napier was a hard one to get a read on i mean i think he's just very patient i think people will tell you to know him that he just kind of cut a different way and he's willing to wait for what he thinks is the right opportunity i mean there are, there are people who believe he might be trying to wait out alabama and so i mean that's obviously many years down the line at this point but he just is 
not shown you know, a desire to just jump at the first big job that comes open. Freeze is a different situation in that Freeze, I would say, still this past cycle, I don't want to say he was untouchable, but there were issues there. And certainly, you know, the, the, and I had written about this, you know, months ago, everybody kind of had him pegged for the Tennessee job if it opened up a year from now. And unfortunately, I think for Freeze, the timing of it just made that impossible. I mean, to fire Jeremy Pruitt, uh, and not pay him any money because of recruiting violations. You can't then hire a guy right. who got an SEC school under trouble for, for recruiting violations. It just made it impossible. And so he's going to have to wait at least another year. And I know he's told people that you know he's patient, he's willing to wait, and he likes the situation at Liberty and all those different things. But I think he would have jumped if he could have gotten Tennessee, and that just was not possible this year. Yeah, you got got to find a, a program with the the right situation, the right environment uh, to to take that that leap. Matt, I, I know you're you're a guy who who keeps up a lot with the up and comers in the coaching industry. Are there are there names to to look out for in the SEC who are not currently head coaches somewhere? Yeah. I mean, first of all, just looking at it in terms of potential SEC head coach openings, I just don't know how many we're going to see this next cycle. You, you yeah, think I think we're talking more about kind of like a two, yeah. the next couple of years, really, because like you said, there there's still going to be a lot of guys entering their first or second year this fall. Yeah, yeah so yeah. you have the top programs, obviously, the, the Alabamas, the, the Georgias, you can even throw the, the A&Ms of the world in there at this point. We're just don't anticipate anything happening or coming up at any point in the near future. And then some of the schools in terms of the middle tier or bottom part of the conference, mo most of them at this point are, are with new coaches entering either their first or second year there. So actually think that uh, these coming cycles, especially this next one, could be relatively quiet in terms of coaching turnover within the SEC. But at the same time, there are up-and-coming assistants within the conference who I think will be in line for head coaching opportunities uh, with jobs outside of the, the SEC. So throughout one, uh, in terms of the, the UCF situation and Dan Lanning, a, a guy who is as respected of as an assistant coach as anybody in the conference. It, People in the, the coaching world that, that have worked with him absolutely rave about Dan Landing and his potential for moving forward. Has got an interest for, for head coaching jobs in the past as recently as the UCF deal, where even if he wasn't a person at the top of the list, at the very least had communication there. The the Jeff Levies of the world, we talked about him with UCF, another up-and-comer. Mike Elko, I know John likes and has talked about before, is another one that seems like he's on a path where could potentially get a head coaching job at some point in the near future. Then I'll throw out an interesting one, Pete Golding at Alabama. So I know has a lot of critics within the Alabama fan base, but I can tell you that there was a lot of buzz in the coaching world if Billy Napier had left Louisiana, that Pete Golding would have been one of the people at the top of the list for that school in terms of potentially filling that vacancy. If that uh, yeah, I mean, look, and it, Saban, Saban has clearly done a lot to keep him around. Um, in, I mean, in addition to the defense – like you said, Matt, the fan base is not going to be appreciative of it because they have memories uh, that that are both focus on the the one bad thing that they remember from this season, but also they they remember 2011. They remember 2016. They remember these elite, destructive Alabama defenses, um, and it's hard for them to accept. I think sometimes that the game has changed a little bit, but. Uh, you know, see, I got a question for you. Yeah. 
tapping into the Alabama fan side of things, has there ever been a bigger gulf between clearly how Golden is viewed by Saban and internally versus how fans view him? I mean, like, I don't know that. I mean, Doug Nussmeyer, I mean, obviously fans didn't like him, but it seemed like Saban ran him out of town. Like, who is there anybody even close to from an assistant standpoint, Alabama-wise, that had such a big difference between Alabama versus Alabama fans? I think it took some time. I mean, look, the, the defense was always just sort of, uh, it, it was it was pretty much always attributed to Saban when it was going well anyway. Right. Uh, so it's hard to find a defensive equivalent. I, I do think there are some offenses that the fans weren't on board with the coordinator until the absolute last possible second. And I think that has more to do with that there this is a fan base that's now sort of become conditioned partly by their head coach to, over criticize and analyze everything and, and not just sort of revel in it. And I, I think there, I mean, you can go back to 2009. Uh, I, I think 2017 is another really good example of the fans just didn't trust that the offense was going to be good enough to get it done until, I mean, in 2017's case, I think if, if Tua doesn't make that throw at the end of the 2017 season, the fan base considers that offense a failure for the season. And instead, they won a national championship, and and uh, Brian Dable is is uh, having a successful career in the NFL now. So, I mean, th th this is definitely a fan base that does not consider you a success right up until the the final whistle of a national championship game. I, I just had to throw in though, and th this is going back to the first topic. I'm actually really disappointed with John right now. So, John threw out a a, a few interesting big names, but he left out one who could conceivably be in, in that same conversation in terms of a, a former SEC head coach has worked in the SEC during the course of the last couple of years, has a, a new job now that if he does well, could maybe put himself in position to to get back to the SEC as a head coach. Do you guys know who? who I, I think we're talking about Mike Loxley. A, incorrect. No? No. So somebody who's just a, a special assistant to the head coach at Alabama. Who well, I, yeah. I don't know. I think Bush is uh look, we'll see. I I, I do think I don't remember who said this, but but uh someone, one of our journalism colleagues yesterday was pointing in the discussion about Tennessee football and where they are and and I think possibly partly the the fact that uh some people felt that UCF possibly has a better head coach than Tennessee has now. I feel um, for the record. Somebody somebody brought up the fact that Butch has actually been one of the most successful head coaches that Tennessee has had, arguably since Philip Fulmer, and um, and really one of the main reasons why people don't see that and, and can't really appreciate that is that Butch was really bad at press conferences. Um, and Butch and I, was incredibly cheesy. Yeah, that was his downfall. And I, I think Butch is a I don't pretend to know Butch, but Every, from the people I talk to and everything, people think he's a good guy. I think he's likable. I think he's pretty genuine. Like, he just fell into the trap of being incredibly cheesy with all his slogans. Like, if you just take away Champions of Life and Five Star Hearts and whatever their weird trash can thing they did, if you just take it out of the way and judge them purely off his record, like you're saying, Scalise, it's really not that bad. It's just that – Considering the, the, the environment that he was in at the time, you know? 
Yeah, and Brick by Brick, I think, was one of his other big ones. Yeah. You know, and I mean, and let's not forget, he did totally misuse Alvin Kamara, who is one of the NFL's best running backs, and instead, uh, you know, focused on who I forget who the other guy was at the time. Uh, Jalen Hurd. Yeah, Jalen Hurd, right. So anyway, I mean, I, I agree. I, I think and I think it's unfortunate for Butch is that the guy who hired him is already gone because he's now the UCF AD. So kind of one of the rare ADs who gets to make two coaching hires uh, in one cycle. I mean, that's pretty, pretty incredible for that guy. Um, but it's, it's never a great situation when you get hired and your boss immediately leaves and somebody else. Comes yeah. But I, I, I do think he's set up well to succeed there. And I think if he gets a couple eight win seasons, eight, nine win seasons, I do think he'll get another power five job. I do. You know, everything we just said about Butch, it's not super far off from what you could have said about Ed Orgeron a few years ago. He was a guy that I think a lot of people didn't take seriously, um, both from his on-field performance at Ole Miss and also because he was kind of a clownish character. And, I mean, look, he he just won a national championship a couple years ago. He got a major job. So I, I certainly wouldn't rule out Butch having another act left in his career uh, as a Power Five head coach. I, I will say this: Arkansas State. I mean, we talked about UCF being one of the, the most attractive Group of Five jobs in the country. I, I think Arkansas State falls in that category. Also, it's a really attractive yeah. Group of Five job that consistently wins. And you cannot tell me that if Butch goes out and has eight, nine, ten win seasons during the course of the next couple of years at Arkansas State, that especially when you now combine the, the rehabbing in Alabama part of it during the course of the last couple of years, that somebody at the power five level and maybe even at the SEC level could be interested to give him a, another opportunity. I think he would be the the biggest possible success story for the Saban rehab clinic uh, be, just because of where he was when he came into it, where his reputation was. So uh, it would be very interesting. To I'll throw one out to John, and I think I know the the, the answer. To, despite the, the fact that one is definitely a, a bigger name at this point in terms of what they've accomplished recently as a head coach, but if you had to put money on it, who would you bet to get an SEC head coaching job first, Butch or Hugh Freeze? I'll go with Hugh Freeze, though. <laughs> I, I wouldn't feel comfortable, or I, I would not feel confident making that bet. We'll see. We we will definitely. Who would you bet between the two of them? I you know factoring in all of the baggage. Yeah, I know. I think I think based on what John said earlier, it's it's tough because Hugh needs more things to go right for him to get a job in the SEC than than Butch does. I think there's more that's not in Hugh Freeze's control uh, than 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 could be said for Butch. So I don't know. It's very interesting. We we do know that the SEC does like to cycle through through names over time. Uh, you you usually get more than one act in the SEC as a as a coach. So we'll we'll I definitely think going forward. We can play a weekly game. Which retread gets back in the SEC first? That's right. Two a week. The coaching carousel has never been more aptly named than it is in the SEC because you just, if you watch long enough, you're just going to see the same guys going past you again. The, the great scenario Josh Heupel struggles during the course of the next few years at Tennessee. Butch kills it at Arkansas State. And <laughs> trying to get back to an elite level brings uh, Butch in to, to, to save uh, save things over in, in Knoxville. The even better scenario, Zenitz, would be same thing, but. Lane goes back to Tennessee, and then Hugh goes back to Ole Miss. Yeah, that, that we just do just everybody just cycles back again. I I rule nothing out in this league <laughs> anymore. All right, guys. Well, uh, 
thanks everybody for joining us. Enjoy the snow today if you're in a uh, if you're in a place that's got it. Stay uh, stay safe. Don't drive. And uh, fellas, we'll do this again next week. Sounds great.